I am more than willing to accept that capitalism pulls more people out of poverty faster. But if you can do good while you're doing well, why not try? And that's the thing with conscious capitalism. The companies that do this have more committed staff. Mm. They have more committed suppliers. Mm. Their customers bring their friends and family I'm here this morning with David Olney. How are you, David? Very well, thank you, Tim. It's good to hear, mate. Listen, I've been thinking a lot on capitalism. It's something I think, uh, particularly my generation, <laughs> or, or young people in general, or perhaps you know, at least our proclivity to left-wing politics seems to struggle with a lot. Whether it's a good or bad thing, you know, we seem to be pulling people out of poverty at a rate faster than ever before, but. It doesn't seem we're short of corruption. So do you have a, like a antidote to capitalism that perhaps isn't socialism? What are your thoughts? Well, I have to first acknowledge that you know I'm a, a long-term supporter of the 19th century anarchists. If I could have a Mikhail Bakunin T-shirt, that would be awesome. <laughs> For listeners who don't know who Mikhail Bakunin is, he was this super cool Russian anarchist who was involved with five failed revolutions, mm. was this big, tall guy with a bald top of his head, long hair down the sides, huge flowing beard, normally wore a black trench coat. In one pocket, there were cigars and a bottle of cognac, and in the other pocket, there was often dynamite. <laughs> he was your cool anarchist revolutionary. But you know, if we're going for alternatives to capitalism, and again, we'll start with alternatives so we can see, I think, why we have to go better capitalism, not alternatives. Mm. So the, the 19th century anarchists were like, right, hate systems because systems always end up corrupt. So we've got to be on like a virtue ethics model where everyone does the best they can. But that then unfortunately leads to, am I my brother's keeper? Because you're responsible for yourself, but you have to help the people around you, which sounds nice, but just ends up being nine out of 10 people going, we agree, number 10, get with the program or else. So even the 19th century anarchists who were really very utopian, idealistic people couldn't really come up with a solution. If we look at Marx, what we have is an incredibly good analysis of what early capitalism looked like and a very good hypothesis about what later capitalism would look like and a terrible prescription about how to fix it. So I'd say to anyone with Marx, go away and read everything that explains where capitalism come from, why it works the way it does, and why without reform it will get even worse. Mm. But I'm now going to make the argument that if what it leads to is Russian totalitarianism, note the word I didn't say, communism, <laughs> and Chinese authoritarianism, note the fact I didn't say communism, <laughs> I don't want it. And in the few places it nearly achieved better results, say somewhere like Cuba, where a country that principally lived on growing sugarcane and your agricultural economy suddenly had good education, good health care, but also you know, authoritarian violence, dependency on the Soviet Union, even there which might be the least worst variant of communist-inspired authoritarianism, we still probably wouldn't want to live in it. So we come back to the fact that capitalism has pulled more people out of poverty faster 
than anything in history. Mm. If you look at the combination from the early 19th century of capitalism allowing unskilled people to earn more and be in a position to then get more skill, to earn more, to get more skill, to earn more, and then add on top of that the advances in public hygiene because cities were so horrible by the 1840s. If you put the combination of capitalism and public hygiene together, you get an increase in average lifespan from 35 to 60 in under 70 years. Right, it's so literally huge. a lifetime. A lifetime. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You've doubled, you, know, you haven't doubled, but you, instead of dying when your kids are teenagers, mm. you die having met your grandchildren. Mm maybe even spent time with them. Yeah, it's huge. So the problem is not making money. The problem is not trading things. The problem is not producing products. The problem is greed, corruption, manipulation. And I, I've always been interested in this ever since I was an undergrad, you know, and I had a, the most remarkable teacher for anarchism and communism, a brilliant man called George Vassilokopoulos who is, I think, now a full professor somewhere in Melbourne. And George basically looks like a mini version of Bakunin, right down to the bald head, the beard, and always wears black. He's like the Greek Bakunin. He's awesome. Mm. At some point, we've got to work out if he would actually come on the phone and do a podcast because <laughs> then you just hear me be a little gushing fanboy for now. It's George. I love George. George is awesome. Actually, his wife, Tool, is awesome too. They're just generally <laughs> awesome. But big sidetrack. <laughs> Didn't know what to do once I could see that anarchism had some great ideals in it. Communism, you know, read the world well but didn't have a good solution what to do. Mm. And got stuck until one day doing research on YouTube to find videos to stick in courses for undergrads so that you lot can watch good things and read later if you're excited. Mm. You know, my normal teaching model, watch first, read later. And the video I was watching finished and up popped a video of a guy called Raj Sisodia talking about his book, Firms of Endearment. Firms of Endearment. And I'm thinking, oh, this is going to be cheese on cheese on cheese. How many cheeses can one have on a cheese pizza? And instead, three minutes later, I'm sucked in. I'm on Amazon. I'm ordering the book. Raj Sisodia is a fascinating guy. Did engineering in India because it was the thing to do to open up opportunities and to do well, to basically do well yourself and help the country. Mm. So always in Raj Sasodi was the balance. I'm going to do well, but in me doing well, other people need to do well as well. Mm. Got to the end of that, had done so brilliantly, started working in engineering in their sort of railway sector, bored out of his mind within weeks. Because he'd so done so brilliantly in engineering, they offered him a spot doing a master's in America. Mm. But it had to be in business. He's like, well, I don't know anything about business. And one of the options was marketing. He thought, well, marketing's interesting because you could help people understand good ideas like public health, you know, how to make the world a better place. So he did the marketing one, did so well at it that he stayed in America and did a PhD, ended up becoming a marketing professor in the Ivy League. Wow. And got to about 2005 and went, this is rubbish. The marketing (laughs) budget for companies in America is bigger than Indian GDP. (laughs) And to what end? We spend all this money on marketing, people buy the product when it's on sale, and then they buy something else when something else is on sale. Mm. What's the point? And he said his master students a fascinating challenge. He said, okay, go out and find me companies 
who don't spend a lot on marketing, mm. where their customers are loyal because they love what the company does, where the staff are loyal because they love what the company does, where the investors buy to hold the shares for the rest of their life because they believe in the company. And he kind of went off giggling going, my poor master's students, mm-hmm. they haven't got a hope. <laughs> Within three weeks, his master's students between them had come back with at least 30 companies. Wow. And Raj had a penny drop moment. There's a different form of capitalism out here. And he went, right, master students, let's get together. You lot contributed. Great. You go in the thank yous and we'll acknowledge who worked on what company. But I've got to get together now with serious people with 20 years in academia and in business to make sense of this. And out of it came this book, Firms of Endearment. And I don't remember anymore how many companies he looks at in it. It's either 20 or 26. Mm. But there are companies who all had the same things in common. Spend very little on marketing relative to other companies. Have incredible loyalty from customers. Have low staff turnover. And have low share turnover. And he went into them and he was fascinated that these companies all had some big things in common. At the core was transcendent meaning. They weren't in the business to make a widget or to make just something average. They were in the business to make the best thing or to give people a better experience. So you've got something like Southwest Airlines, who even though they fly people all over the place, what they think their business is about is making people happy. Mm. You've got companies like Whole Foods Market, Mm. whose whole ethos is we want people to be able to eat healthy food and to be able to learn how and to be able to go into one store knowing they could pick up anything in that store and it's good for them and of high quality and ethically sourced. And Raj found that you know there were car companies like this, like Honda was absolutely there in this model, in this firms of endearment model. Uh, Toyota was more or less there most of the time. Mm. That you know, JetBlue had followed... Southwest Airlines into that, that there were mid-sized banks in America that looked after people in their lives and small business who fit the model. There were little tech companies that fit it. There were big tech companies that fit it. That it was absolutely amazing. And he wrote the book and the book caused a little bit of a stir. Mm. But the really important thing was this was just before the GFC, this book came out. Really? So, you know, he, he wrote the small wave of the book made sure people knew, and then tried to make sense of well, how to do marketing in the GFC. Mm. 2012, he put together the second edition of Firms of Endearment, and he thought, this is going to be the proof. Mm. What did these companies do in the GFC? What did they do while mainstream Wall Street, mainstream business, was imploding and convincing government to bail us out and to let all of us worldwide pay to bail out people who'd been slobs? who'd had bad business practices, risky investments. And what he found when he went back and looked at the original companies from Firms of Endearment 1, all of them had grown during the GFC. Fire out. And he's like, whoa, mm-hmm. how? Because of the loyalty. People knew this company wouldn't screw their staff over, wouldn't screw their suppliers over and wouldn't sell out anybody to give the customers a temporary discount. Mm. And he found that you know, uh, John Mackey at Whole Foods Market had done this amazing thing when the GFC hit hard. He'd put up a single sheet in every store that simply said, things are now very difficult. We can't afford to discount prices. 
we can't afford to pay producers more and we can't afford to pay our staff more. But I promise that we won't steal from one group to benefit another. Mm. And he went to the senior investors and went, look, we've had an amazing growth period. It's now stopped. We're going to be going backwards for a while because people can't necessarily afford to shop with us as much as they did. Mm. I don't know how you're going to respond to this, but here's what I'm doing. And all the major investors did the opposite thing you would expect from greedy bastards. (laughs) They all said, no problem. We believe in you and we believe in the company and that's why we're invested in you. We're with you for the long haul. If this takes five years to get out of this, so be it. Because you'll come out of this stronger, we'll come out of it stronger and we'll be doing something ethical. So that's such a vote of confidence which we would know is the basis of... Good business. Exactly, yeah. So because of this, Raj Sisodia met John Mackey um, and John Mackey was the founder of Whole Foods, a hippie who spent his time at uni reading everything cool in sight and not passing much mm. and just not seeing the point in university. You know, mm. He wanted to run a supermarket. Uni wasn't teaching him how to do that. Yeah. So he and a bunch of friends opened a supermarket in a house. It went so well that they had a store. It went so well, they then merged with another independent, like healthy supermarket. I think it's Houston from memory. Mm -hmm. Months after the store opens in Houston, John Mackey, if I get it wrong, sorry, write Mm -hmm. in and tell me I got it wrong. Mm -hmm. And if you want to come on the podcast, you're more than welcome. (laughs) The city in Texas where the first big store, when they combined with another store, had opened. And only a few months after opening, the worst flooding in recorded history. Mm. came in the store was flooded to the height of the top of the shelves whoa and john and the other partners are like we're doomed (laughs) (laughs) we're just doomed that was everything we had Mm. that was everything from our first store that was everything from with the store that we combined with that was all the credit that the suppliers could provide us Mm. we were only just getting the customers used to being at the new store oh crap so John Mackey goes to bed, tosses, turns, to, gets up in the morning and goes, okay, I better go in and see what's left. He turns up, the water's receding and that's why yeah, they're allowed back in. Mm. All the staff are there. Heaps of their customers are there. Mm. Heaps of their suppliers are there, all starting to clean up the store. And John's like, wow, what happened? And the staff come up and go, John, we've all agreed. We're happy to work for you until you can afford to start paying us again Whoa, for free. Far out. The customers go, John, let us know as soon as you've got stock. We'll be back. Mm. The suppliers go, John, we trust you. We'll give you more credit. Far out. All because as this guy who was reading philosophy and leadership books at college, he'd bucked all the garbage that gets taught in business schools and gone straight to what actually works. Mm which when he and Raj Sisodia got together, they realized they believed in all the same things and they gave it a name, conscious capitalism. Mm. And the characteristics of a conscious capitalist company are the same. You always have a transcendent purpose. Money allows you to do that transcendent thing, but money is not an end in itself. Money is great because money lets you have a good life, but money without the transcendent purpose, why be there? So John Mackey puts it very simple. He says, the aim is to do good while you're doing well. Mm. And that's the essence of conscious capitalism. The next big thing in it is, and we've talked about this in a little way in other podcasts, everything is a plus-sum game. Mm. 
And when John Mackey put that bit of paper up in all the stores and said, we can't do anything to help anyone at the moment, but we can agree not to harm anyone. That was still a plus sum game. In hard times, everyone knew they weren't going to be screwed. Mm. And the third thing, he doesn't really have a, a clear name for it. It's about treating people with respect, empowering them to succeed. Um, and his description is very good. Well, their description in conscious capitalism is very good. Mm. But I would rather use Robert Greenleaf's <laughs> phrase, servant leadership. Mm. And that is that what a good leader does is make sure there's a big, good strategic vision for people to follow and then empowers people to reach it and then gets out of their way and just checks in to see, are you on track? Do you know where you're heading? Do you need help? Do you need resources? And as long as people are heading in the right direction, you just support them and keep empowering them. When there's new skills needed or whatever, you provide the training, but once again, you empower them and then unleash them, which is very much the Whole Foods model. Yeah. Whole Foods is remarkable in that it's a supermarket chain with a personnel turnover less than 8% a year. That's the people working for? Yep, yeah, leaving mm. in a given year. For a supermarket with part-timers, that's unheard of. Mm. It's normally more like 30% or higher. Wow. People go, why am I getting a $90,000 college debt when I have fun working at Whole Foods? Mm. Mm. <laughs> now, listeners, at this point you go, David's a softy, David's mm. a socialist. No, <laughs> I'm more than willing to accept that capitalism pulls more people out of poverty faster. But if you can do good while you're doing well, why not try? And that's the thing with conscious capitalism. The companies that do this have more committed staff. Mm. They have more committed suppliers. Mm. Their customers bring their friends and family in. Oh, one of the examples where we'd be a bit aware of it now in Adelaide, Costco. Mm. Full-blown conscious capitalism. Really? In its American version, I don't know if it works the same here in Australia, okay. but there, everyone who works there gets a share of the profits. Right. Everyone who works there is normally referred by someone who works there or has been a long-term customer and comes in and asks for a job saying, well, I've been shopping on my family Costco card for 10 years since I was 12. <laughs> But that thing of connection. So you can have a warehouse type store selling cheap products but still meet all the criteria of Rajasodia Sodia John Mackey pre-GFC post. Well, I suppose because they're doing good isn't necessarily like the products or the, like the widgets that they sell. No. It's about how you treat your people. Mm. So you know, Whole Foods Market, for example, John could not believe the cost of trying to provide health care uh, in America through an external provider. And he went, well, we're big enough now. Why don't we just hire some good health care people and have our own division? Mm. That way all we have to do is do it at an economically viable level rather than do it to make a profit for shareholders. Mm. Mm. So suddenly everyone at Whole Foods has high-quality health care at about the best price you can get outside of being in the U.S. Army. <laughs> wow. Yeah, because there it's just covered. Mm. Whole Foods mm. you pay, but mm. what you get for your money... Yeah. Like if you need to lose weight, they'll do a deal like, well, you do the checkups, but the better you do, we'll increase your staff discount by a couple of percent to keep you eating healthy food. That's awesome. Yeah, that's so good. Now, listeners, when you go look this up, you'll see that Whole Foods is now owned by Jeff Bezos, mm. the Amazon mm. founder, mm. because John Mackey had just put a lifetime in and it was time to move on. Mm. 
I have to hope that Whole Foods will tame Jeff Bezos <laughs> rather than Jeff Bezos wreck Whole Foods. Right. Because let's not kid ourselves. Amazon treat people like shit. Do they? Yeah. Oh. Uh, people in warehouses work nine-hour shifts where if their toilet break is more than oh. four minutes, they're in trouble. Oh, okay. So we have to hope that Whole Foods tames the Amazon yeah. conglomerate. Not that the Amazon conglomerate pollutes Whole Foods, but we'll see. This is then it's a good contrast with the point that I wanted to bring up. There's an argument that's been around for maybe half a century at least, probably longer than that, but let's say more mainstream written in books and things um, between stockholder and stakeholder theory, Mm. which is business ethics. And so stockholders are people that have financial investment Mm. in a company and then stakeholders are people that have all kinds of other investment in a company. So a stakeholder might be, Staff, uh, mm. the consumers. So well, precisely this plus some game. That's all exactly the groups it. we were talking about. Yeah. So I'm going to say you can't ignore stockholders, mm. but what you want is your stakeholders to believe in the company so much they become stockholders. Yeah. That would be the ideal combination, mm. in my opinion. So this whole thing that it should be a debate whether it's stockholder or stakeholder. No. If you want this to be about screwing people to make money, go mm-hmm. stockholder mm. and watch what your productivity looks like. Watch what the loyalty of your staff is like. Watch what the loyalty of your customers is like. Mm. If you're a company that need to hang out for the pre-Christmas sale to improve your sales figures, you're failing. It means people don't believe in you. Mm. If you've got high turnover of people, you're failing. People don't believe in you. If you've got suppliers that are looking to do business with your competitors, you're failing. They don't believe in you. This is why I don't go along well with business professors. <laughs> now, the wonderful example in Japan, and it's an amazing one, if you're a little company and you make some part for a car or a motorcycle or something, they reckon that partnering with Honda is a bigger, deeper thing than getting married. Right. They, they make it ceremonial. Well, it's so important mm. to your future and it's for life mm. of the companies. Like if Honda decide that you're the right company to make something like, you know, the beautiful leather for the inside of their high-level cars. Yeah, right. You are not just bought in and said, please deliver. It's could you please have someone who can come to the meetings for the design process for the new vehicle? You are now inside the secret loop. You know what the interior of the next model looks like. And we want your ideas how you can take your skill as a leather working company to make it look even more amazing. And so they're outsourcing. This ends up with a better product as yes. well because you're outsourcing to people who know but more they know about the individual year in, things. year out. Mm. You're going to be, you know, I'm going to be making amazing leather stuff for you. Mm. But I know I can rely on you. And over time, you can speak honestly with each other. Mm. Well, people don't just want leather anymore. You know, or people don't just want wood inlay on a dash anymore. They want carbon fiber. If you've got these amazing craftsmen who can hand fit pieces of timber, Mm. Could your amazing craftsman hand fit the carbon fiber? Well, yes, we could. Mm. We don't know how yet, but if it's only two years away, we can learn. So this is about recognizing there is nothing wrong with making money, but people who believe in what they do work harder, work more effectively. People who can buy from a company who work that way are willing to pay a little bit more, not a lot more, a little bit more, to feel good about their decision. Mm. You know, I always used to run the thing with tutorials with undergraduates. Okay, you walk into a shop, there's two T-shirts. One's $30, it's made in China, no one's allowed to be in a union. Mm. One's from Cambodia and you see the tag that says they've got a union and it's providing childcare for the little kids 
and basic educations for the people sewing. Wow. For, say, four bucks more. Mm. So $30 T-shirt does nothing for nobody. Mm. $34 T-shirt, you know exactly what it does for somebody. Mm. Which one do you buy? $34 one. Yeah, makes as, long, as long as it's only that four bucks. Yeah. So the game is to play, well, at what point wouldn't we buy the T-shirt? Uh-huh. And that's why I said 30 for the one with no unions, mm. 34 for the one with. Mm. Because it seems the tipping point where, again, for undergrads on limited income, mm. once it hits 35, that's a bit too much. Yeah. They have to start thinking, can I afford that? <laughs> Rather than just being, I feel good doing this. Yeah. And this is the trick with these companies. Yes, within the conscious capitalism category, you know, as Raj Sosodia investigated it, there were companies doing super premium stuff. But in the main, there were more companies doing mid-quality, just a little bit better than people who were doing a similar product, but in an unethical way. So as consumers, how conscious are we? Because you know, I think about, say, for instance, McHappy Day or something like that. And I know that that does normally get more of a turnaround than, say, any other day in terms of buying precisely whatever burgers. But for me, donations went from Kmart or something like that to to children. I think they're good causes, but I'm never conscious of them as I'm going through the checkout. No, but what brand of computer do you own? <laughs> Mac. Yeah, right. I've got an Apple. <laughs> Have you seen the footage of the robot pulling everything to bits and recycling all the rare earth minerals? I haven't, but it sounds okay. incredible. Because that's, that video with Apple users seems to have helped them understand more about the company. Mm. So listeners, from my perspective, being blind, my iPhone, I love my cane because my cane gets me from A to B. Mm. But if I had to give my cane up, I could use a piece of polypipe, you know, a piece of thin timber. I could get around without my cane. But you take my iPhone away, I'm in real trouble. <laughs> because all the accessibility for a blind person is built into it. Mm. So what I would argue is in an era where more and more we might browse in stores, but we go home and look for the best price online and we read the reviews and we read the links to the company's homepage. If we want, it's now easier to be informed than it ever has been. Mm. And that, you know, what I've found from, and again, it's anecdotal evidence, but from doing the T-shirt example with undergrads for 10 years is when I asked them years later, hey, do you think a little bit more now when you buy? And they go, not all the time, but more often than not. Yeah. And I go, okay, who when they got their coffee today knows which place on campus does fair trade coffee? Yeah. And half the kids will say, yeah. I'm all, fair trade isn't perfect, but it's better than not fair trade. Mm-hmm. Again, fair trade, you know, is not that great, but it's better than awful. We've got to start somewhere. <laughs> and it's, it's all of those little fads that over time yeah. they stay with you and you end up making better decisions. Just I think as a society we do a reasonable job of pulling those things into the spotlight. I think people need to focus more. Here in Australia we're all super frustrated with the state of federal politics. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah, you know, either of the major parties at the moment, you know, you just want to imagine them as a block of cheese and get a cheese grater out. <laughs> Whittle them down until they fall into little bits and then melt them on something mm. and then start again. <laughs> I don't know if that's good imagery, but I liked it. Yeah, it's I cool. like the sensation of the cheese on the cheese grater. Yeah. But every day you spend money. Mm. Every day. Most of us every day buy something in the world. Mm. <laughs> at least one thing. Did it have ethically sourced palm oil in it if you're going to buy something with palm oil? Mm. If you had a choice of a couple of coffees, 
and one was fair trade and one wasn't, which one did you buy? If it's the start of summer and you need a new pair of sandals and you see that, you know, catch of the day's got Birkenstocks, mm. which is actually what I'm wearing today, which is why I think of it. <laughs> and I went, hey, it's made in Germany and it's totally ethical. Mm. And the soles can be replaced. As opposed to like Havianas or something. Yeah, okay. They're cheap, mm. but you have to chuck them. Mm. Whereas I can go into the, the Birkenstock store in the central market, drop this pair off and go back two days later and they'll have a new sole on them. Really? Yes, it's dearer than a pair of Havianas. Yeah. But if I can resell them every two years for the next 10, mm. how much less garbage went in landfill or ended up in that huge big pile of pollution in the middle of the Pacific? Yeah. Yeah, that poor bloody dead whale the other day with, what was it, eight kilos of plastic in it? Mm. And part of it was a pair of flip-flops. Mm. Like, I'm, I'm sure that whale didn't want to try and eat a flip-flop. It's funny, you know, we always compare prices of things in terms of percentages. So, like, when you look at tuna, so tuna is a really good example because, you know, maybe 60% probably more are not sustainably fished. Mm. And the difference between buying the one that is sustainably fished and the one that isn't is like a dollar a can. It's yeah. like, and, and you think about it and it's like, oh, well, but, you know, that's 30% of what yes. the thing costs. So that seems like a lot, but then you put it, like, into perspective of it's just a dollar. And do you want nice fish out of the ocean forever yeah it's an investment we all get so wrapped up in bad things in the day the news Mm. you know someone being rude in the street someone bumping into us how about focusing on little nice things Mm. i just bought a fair trade coffee Mm. i'm gonna eat my can of ethical tuna Mm. now am i sounding like a hippie quite possibly (laughs) don't care well i would rather focus on a positive Mm. that I can control every day and then leverage a hundred of those over the next month. Mm. And that that's the thing about this conscious capitalism movement. Yes, there were companies in it who do megabuck things that you buy once every five, ten years, like a really expensive Honda. Mm. But every day you can bank with a bank that behaves ethically. Mm. Every day you can go to a supermarket that has you know an ethical corner. Mm. These are little choices, but the more of us that make little choices, the more we indicate to the world, if you do the right thing by us, we'll do the right thing by you. And that's the thing. Every person who works in a company is also a consumer, and every consumer also works for somebody. So you're never just on one side of this equation. You're always on both. If you have to work for someone unethical, Is it going to make you feel better that at least you can spend that money somewhere where it has more of an impact than your company does? Mm. Or if you work somewhere ethical and you know what they do and how they try to help, isn't it more likely that you're going to take that thinking with you into how you spend your pay from that company? And then it comes back to the company as well because then the people that work for it talk about it in a positive way. Precisely. It brings more clientele in. So. And that's the thing that, you know, Raj Sosodia found from the perspective of being a marketing academic, mm. that these firms of endearment, they spent money on marketing because they still need to grow. Mm. But proportionally, they spent less. And they weren't doing advertising to sell extra products on sale. Mm. They were advertising to sell products without changing the price. Mm. And that that's a huge difference. It's about bringing in new people not trying to pump up sales by discounting. Mm. A very different underlying business decision. Uh, I think the other thing that's growing, and we're seeing it a bit in Australia, it's happening more in the US. And for it to be happening in the land of the rabid capitalist is really Mm. interesting. And that's cooperatives. Mm -hmm. Where when you go to work for it, 
you become essentially a shareholder. And each year, everyone gets a proportion of the net profit. And we, the profit doesn't disappear to stockholders. It stays with stakeholders. Mm. Now, there are some very big and interesting cooperatives in IT, and they tend not to be the brands we know. They tend to be like people doing the backroom accounting mm. for where you have to have your little online store. You don't know how to run it, how to make it work well. So these people provide services like that. You know? And what it means is they can be based all over the Midwest. You know, people can work from home on their laptop, mm. but everyone's part of it. So I think between cooperatives and the conscious capitalism movement, we've got some things that say we can do good while we're doing well. And it's not going to persuade everybody instantly. But if I've got that extra couple of minutes and I want to buy a new thing that I haven't had to buy before, mm. one of the first things I'm going to go look is the about page for the company, mm. what they do, what do they do in terms of their staff being able to do volunteering? What do they do in terms of charity? How do they treat their suppliers? What are the reviews all about? Because I can afford that five minutes if I'm going to spend you know, new money. Mm. So just to finish up, I guess, can, can you provide any, any more tips, I guess, for our listeners when they're going out to, let's say, our, like Australia's biggest retailers? You know, you've got people like Kmart or Target and stuff, and those things aren't necessarily on their about pages. No. And in the main, those kind of corporations are beginning to improve their behavior. Okay. Like Kmart has been supposedly improving its behavior. Mm -hmm. But really, I would argue in Australia, the important choice is to go, okay, I need a cheap thing today to get a job done, but mm -hmm. why am I buying that cheap thing? Mm -hmm. Is it so I can buy something that lasts a long time tomorrow that was either made or supported in Australia? And mm -hmm. that's not to say that made in Australia is best. <laughs> <laughs> but are you supporting someone with as a long-term relationship? That'll upset some people, I think. Yeah. Oh, look, some Australian stuff is awesome. Yeah. I would argue we don't have an Australian car industry anymore because we wouldn't make awesome enough cars. No. We didn't make what people needed and wanted. So I come from that background. I'm yeah. not sure that we ever really made anything that was up to standard internationally. This was the problem. Tariffs protected it. So we built to the standard that they required. Mm. Without tariffs... We got better. We got better dramatically. But because Holden and Ford wanted to be involved in touring car racing or <laughs> supercar, yeah, uh, it's almost like we couldn't conceive of, we don't drive them. We can't afford to. Mm. They don't fit in our little garages. Whereas other markets really hit this thing where they were able to put streetcars on the racetrack and then people could... yeah. Um, feel invested in you know well the, the irony at the moment you want a hardcore rear wheel drive car in Australia the best bang for buck is the Hyundai Stinger uh, the, yeah the Kia it's the same company yeah yeah, yeah. oh Hyundai yeah. or Kia yeah it's it's a Kia, Kia but it's, sorry, um, wrong, it's wrong all company. the same they're the okay. same company yeah rear wheel drive what mm. V6 turbo yeah, yeah yeah so a monster for what 50 something yeah it's about that mm. yeah so <laughs> again you know, Korean drift racers had a good idea yeah and implemented it <laughs> yep but this is the thing. It's going to be hard to work out how to spend your money. Mm. I would say the more important thing is deciding where you want to work. Mm. Interesting. How, how does a company treat you? How does it treat other employees? How does it treat customers? I know things are hard in Australia and we need every job we can have. Mm. Mm. But you know, one of the little things I do, and again, it's a David thing because I've got more money than an undergraduate. 
But if the toss-up is to have my coffee at Chibos where it's money going into a chain <laughs> or go to the tiny place at the end of the street with good coffee, fair trade, mm. where the baked goods are coming from a local two or three human bakery mm. and everyone working there has actually got enough hours to make a proper living mm. because it's family and friends of the owners. Where am I going to spend my money for lunch? Mm. So to my mind, some areas it's really hard you know, to work out how to do this. Like, you know, if you need to go out and buy a beautiful pair of dress shoes to wear with a suit, we well, go off and you buy Danish-made Echo shoes because mm. they tick every ethical box. But they're also going to cost you $250. Yeah. But if it's dress shoes to go with your suit, they're going to look good enough to go with your nice suit. Mm. But if it's lunch, lunch I can make a bigger difference. Yeah. And I know it's hard to take responsibility for recognising that even though we're meant to think it's democracy that changes the world, mm. No. Democracy works, I think, because of capitalism. It, it's going to take a little bit of a change in our consumerist minds, I think, because, you know, I think I have this philosophy of I try and live like a rich person by buying less cheap stuff and more expensive Having stuff. Having a few very nice things yes. that you really love and will have for a long time. Mm. And I wonder if that is... My sense is more and more people going down this path of going, I can't afford to have much. Mm. I can either have a lot of crap or a few good things. Yeah. And that in some ways it's much more enjoyable to go, this thing is a really nice example of what it does. Mm. The retail therapy is, if anything, more rewarding when you buy like a nicer thing. Yeah, when you go, I want that and now I'm going to go save for it. Yep. So the instant gratification of putting on the plastic and paying it off later, I would argue too, if you want to start changing your behaviour in capitalism, see it, value it, save for it. Mm. Because when you go get it and it's yours and you've wanted it and you're still sure you want it mm. and you're sure you're sure you wanted it because <laughs> the cash is in your hand. Mm. There's an old thing I always remember my Hungarian grandmother teaching me as a little kid. Hold the money in your right hand, now swap it to your left hand, now, only if you really want to buy the thing, put it back in your right hand. <laughs> Just think that bit longer. That money's in your hand at the moment. Mm. Once that money's gone, this is all over. And even as a nine-year-old buying toys, <laughs> I used to do it. <laughs> if it worked at age nine, I can't see why it can't work forever. Yeah. Right. Well, it's given us a lot of practical things, I think, to do over the next week. All right. We want 20 emails about different good fair trade coffees. <laughs> <laughs> around Adelaide especially would be would be helpful because yep, that way we can go there <laughs> yeah <laughs> thank you very much David thank you too